You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Please join me in prayer. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to, again, uh, come before your people and share your word. I just humbly ask that my words be your words, my thoughts be your thoughts. And if there's anything in this message this morning that is not in keeping with your perfect will, I just simply ask that it fall on deaf ears. I also ask for the presence and encouragement of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the lesson that you have for each of us today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just before we get real start, uh, started, does, does everybody have a, a, a sermon's notes page? There's just uh, some notes. Great. Uh, so the bold, the scripture that's listed in bold, that's what I'm going to encourage us to uh, follow along with. And then the other scriptures, the ones that aren't in bold, are just simply scriptures that I'll reference throughout the message. And uh, so if you're a bit of a keener and you want to turn ahead, uh, you'll know that the bold things are the ones that we're going to be going to from start to start. So I'd like to start today with a quote from Lorraine Botner's book titled Immortality. Dr. Botner was a 20th century Christian author and an American theologian. Uh, The quote is actually on the back of the, the handout. So quote, I'm standing on a seashore. A ship at my side spreads her sails to the morning breeze and starts for the ocean blue. She is an object of beauty and strength, and I stand and watch her until, at length, she hangs like a speck of white cloud just where the sea and sky come down to meet each other. Then someone at my side says, there, she is gone. Gone? Gone where? Gone from my sight is all. She is just as large in mast and hull and spar as she was when she left my side, and just as able to bear her load of living weights to its place of destination. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. And just at that moment when someone says, there she is gone, on that distant shore there are other eyes watching for her coming, other voices ready to take up the glad shout. Here she comes, and such is dying. End quote. So Botner has put a new spin on an old allegory for that final journey that we must all take. Ancient cultures, from the Greeks and Romans to the Vikings, used some sort of journey by boat or ship to represent the transition from this life to the next, if you believed in an afterlife. Relatives of the dead would often place a coin on each eye or a coin in the mouth of the deceased in order to pay the wages of the ferryman to get their deceased loved one across the river Styx. We can put a Christian spin on this allegory for our final journey by illustrating that we will have someone waiting on the other side to welcome us. I'll come back to that in the conclusion. But here in today's text, we see the teacher coming back to what are by now familiar themes. But in this chapter, he is using the method of comparison to illustrate his point. These are not full-on Tobe sayings, like Kyle introduced us to that concept, where the teacher claims one thing to be better than another. 
He simply makes some comparisons of experiences that we should expect along the way in this life. These experiences are shared between those who walk with God and those who do not. He also spends time dwelling on the ultimate outcome for us all. And in verse 10, the teacher refers to Sheol by name. Let's look at verse 1 together. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. So the expression he uses there, I laid to heart, is used to convey the level of sincerity and the depth of concern the teacher has placed on himself during the examination of these things. He is letting us know that he has not taken this task lightly, but he desires to genuinely and completely discover the answers to the questions that he has set for himself. By this point in his exploration, he has reached some conclusions. Most of these pursuits are outside the control of man. That's why he uses the expression, the hand of God. The hand of God has some interesting uses in the Bible. It is used most frequently in the Old Testament, twice in Job, four, or sorry, twice in Ecclesiastes, four times in Job, and twice in the New Testament. Turn with me to Job chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Job chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And this is Job talking, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Both good and bad things and good and bad events are blessings from the hand of God. Later in Job, the hand of God is also used to represent a corrective touch from a loving father. Turn to chapter 19, verse 21, just a few pages. Chapter 19, verse 21, and this is Job's, Job speaking once again. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Job has just refinished cap, recapping some of the things that he has suffered during his trials here. And Job is trying to encourage his friends to see the redemptive qualities in the suffering that has come upon him and his family. Can we claim that same level of faith and acceptance of our lot in life that Job exhibited? These two views of guidance and correction regarding the hand of God have been discussed and debated over the years. Ambrose, the bishop of Milan in the fourth century AD, spoke of the hand of God as a guiding authority on our lives. Also, as a healing touch, as in the healing touch that Jesus showed to Peter's mother-in-law in the Gospels. But later in the 14th century, Thomas Akempis, the author of the devotional book, The Imitation of Christ, saw the hand of God as a disciplinary rod to punish, correct, and guide us through life. My personal in inclination as a believer, living under a period of grace, is to align my thinking more along the lines of Ambrose rather than Akempis. Not that I am trying to diminish the holiness and righteousness of God's character, and I certainly acknowledge his right to judge us immediately on our sins at any time of his choosing. Revelation chapter 20 warns us that we will all stand before a holy and just God while he sits on the great white throne of judgment, and we will all have to account for our words and actions. As a holy and just God, he has that right. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and look at the next two verses. Verses 2 and 3. 
It is the same for all, since the same event to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and, to the, and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears an oath is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that, ha that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So with the perceptions of Ambrose in mind concerning the hand of God, we see the comparisons of the different allotments of blessings and trials imposed on us from God as we go through life. The teacher is clarifying here that they all come directly from the hand of God. Koholet has previously explained to us that even the ability to enjoy these blessings is enabled by God for us. And in verse 2, he highlights that the same events happen to both the righteous and the wicked. It is so easy for us to fall prey to the self-deception that because we are Christians and because we faithfully worship and pray and give and serve God, that somehow he owes us some good things or we have earned some favor with God. Last week, Kyle unpacked the nugget in his sermon that if the wicked truly received what they deserved, we would all be well served by purchasing asbestos undergarments, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And James 2.10 warns us, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Be warned that if you are trying to earn your way to heaven, you're in danger. Just try and gain favor with God, the Father apart from Christ, and you will end up with the reward that you deserve. Look at the end of verse 2. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears an oath is as he who shuns an oath. Saint or sinner, believer or unbeliever, the results are the same. In verse 3, the teacher is now getting to the concept that he is driving at. This is an evil thing, that the same event happens to all. What is that event? They live, and after that, they go to the dead. In verse 4, Kohelet illustrates the injustice he feels in this result by the expression, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Keep in mind, for that culture, dogs were seen as lowly creatures. They would roam the streets, scavenging small animals and other morsels to eat. The lion, on the other hand, was seen as a majestic creature, a royal animal, the top of the food chain in the ancient Near East. Therefore, the teacher is saying that a live dog is better than a dead lion. Your station in life carries no weight in death. And thanks to this line of thinking, in verses 7 to 9, the teacher goes back to his familiar logic that we've seen throughout the earlier chapters. So let's look at verses 7 to 10. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So here in these verses, we see that Kohelet is encouraging us to eat, drink, and be merry, for God has enabled and approved of this. Wearing white garments and having oil on your head were signs that you were doing well in that culture. The opposite of when a person was in a time of mourning, they would rip their garments and put ashes on their head during their time of grief. 
White clothes were good to reflect the heat of the near Middle East, and oil on your head was helped to keep your skin moist, and oftentimes the oil was perfumed so you would have a pleasant aroma about you. In verse 9, Koholet goes on to encourage the reader to enjoy your life with the wife you love. But then he throws in this catch. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. The person that the word he is identifying is God. Only God can give days to our lives. So Koholet is clarifying that only God has the power to give these things to us, and he is the one who enables us to enjoy them. But Koholet goes on to remind us that the Hebel life, the vain or meaningless life, for those that are living apart from God, that if this is your lot in life, and if this toil is your portion in life under the sun, again, a living a life apart from God, then the approach you must take to life is to do it, to do it with all your might. Now here in verse 10 is the real kicker. The end of verse 10 says, For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now those that were with us last time I preached, remember we were in chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes and I was introducing you to the concept of death and the afterlife that the Hebrews held at the time that this book was written. I mentioned that for the Israelites, the concept of death was a sort of non-existence in a holding place, a place named Sheol. Here in this verse, Koholet himself expands on that very thought. Sheol was a place for them that had no work. You had no knowledge. You weren't aware enough even to think. Your earthly wisdom, if you had any, was of no use to you in Sheol because it was a place of no wisdom. And Kohalet ends the verse with the ominous phrase, to which you are going. To which you are going. Is it any wonder why the teacher is telling us to eat, drink, and be merry? If Sheol is all you have to look forward to after this life, why not simply enjoy yourself? Enjoy your life, enjoy your wife, enjoy your family, enjoy your toil, and do the best that you can while you are here. Wear white clothes with an oiled and perfumed head so people cannot see the worry and concern that you have for how this is all going to end. Put on a brave face, if you will. So let's stop right, right here for a second. I want you to realize something. I want this thought to sink into the innermost place of your heart and mind. If you are a person who does not know Jesus on an intimate and personal level, these verses are talking to you. Maybe these verses are speaking to you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to reach you and convict you of the fact that your relationship with Jesus is not in the proper state that you need it to be in. I pray that it is in a proper state with Christ. But Paul, how can I know if I have a proper relationship with Jesus? I'm glad you asked. The Apostle Paul gives some very clear guidance in two places in the New Testament. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 5, 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15. It's a small book near the back of the Bible in the New Testament. Right after Galatians, Ephesians 5, verse 15. 
Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the end, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here in this verse, Paul tells us to walk as the wise, not the unwise, because the days are evil. He tells us to understand the will of the Lord. Be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Listen to your conscience when making decisions. Paul warned his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though through this insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So what is a seared conscience? A seared conscience is what happens when we ignore the promptings of the Spirit that he makes through our conscience. Some ignore that leading for so long, it's like we have taken a hot iron and seared it shut. We have ignored God for so long that we've built up scar tissue on our conscience so thick that we cannot hear God's promptings anymore. My wife Marilyn went to a women's conference a few years back, and one of the guest speakers put the same thought another way. The speaker pointed out that if you are no longer hearing from God in your daily walk, maybe you have built a wall around you and are keeping Christ out. This thought had a big impact on Marilyn, and she came home from that conference really examining and questioning herself if she was guilty of that. So I'll challenge you this morning to ask yourself the same thing. Are you sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or have you seared your conscience or built a wall around your heart because you refuse to bend the knee to Jesus? Is Christ asking you to do something that you are resisting? Or is he asking you to submit some area of your life that you refuse to give over to him? Perhaps a favorite sin that you won't let go of? Is there something that is making you feel uncomfortable? Something that you feel, feel you are unable to do or ill-equipped to do? Christ may be asking you to do something so it will bring you closer to him, make you depend on him instead of on your own abilities. I'm going to give you a bit of a warning here, a piece of free advice, if you will. If this is you that I'm talking about, my advice to you is pay attention and listen to that prompting. I say listen to him because God the Father loves you so much that he will do something in your life to correct you and bring you back to him. He is a loving father, and as all loving fathers should do, he will correct his children. He may do something that will really get your attention, and not always in a good way. Now, if you have a little hrumph in your throat when I was saying these things, that little nag in your conscience when I said that, that is the prompting of the Holy Spirit. As Vody Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. I'm not picking on anyone from up here. I know people are going through things right now. We are all going through things right now, so I'm not singling out anyone for these words. 
They apply to all of us, myself included. For too many years, I sat on the sidelines because my feelings were hurt and my confidence was shattered in a previous church. Because of that, I validated in my thinking that I didn't have to attend weekly services. I didn't have to join a church as a member, and I certainly didn't need to serve another church because I was hurt the last time I did these things. Well, I'll confess to you all that I was wrong to think that way. I was wrong to ignore the plans that God had for my life. Thanks to God's providence, I serve a God who is loving and patient and long-suffering, and he chose not to upset my life in a drastic manner to get my attention. Rather, Jesus chose to withhold from me peace and contentment. He allowed worry to creep back into my life. He awakened in me a longing to serve him in any way that he saw fit. And now I'm trying to be obedient to his leading and to become sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit so that I can keep my life in the center of his will. Having your life aligned with God's will, God's will, the pl that plans that he has for you, is amazing. It's like being in the eye of a hurricane. The very center of a hurricane is peaceful and calm. There may be some things that you have to clean up, but the winds are calm. There is silence compared to the roaring of the storm that wrecked havoc in your life. I'm not saying that outside of God's will is an automatic class five hurricane, but outside of his will, you will find chaos. Errors are made in our lives when we are outside of his will and outside of his teachings. Here's something else I want you to feel deeply. Unlike those of us who know Christ and may step into the chaos from time to time, those who do not know Christ are trapped in that chaos part of the, that hurricane. They turn to drugs, illegal and prescription drugs, to dull the pain and to try and calm the chaos. Alcohol, gambling, illicit sex are other things that the lost turn to to dull the pain. Even some Christians turn to these things instead of Christ to find peace. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not judging anyone. These are not my criteria to see if you are living a godly life. These are biblical standards, not my standards. Galatians 5, to 23 lists the ultimate checklist for those that are in God's will. Although there are nine attributes listed, nine different qualities that should be evident in our life, they are listed as one single fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, but a single fruit. We should have all of these as evidence of the leading of the Holy Spirit, and even more than that, they are evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. When you have the fruit evidenced in your life, that's when you know that you're in the eye of the hurricane and not in the chaos of the storm. Amen or ouch? I'll admit I have a couple of these tender spots myself. Since I have those tender spots, that indicates that those are the areas where I still need work. I need to pay more attention to those things in my life. What are those things for me? Well, that's none of your business. That's between me and the Lord. And I trust that he will continue to convict me until I bring my life back into full alignment with him. Just like if I hit a tender spot in you, that's none of my business, but rather it is between you and Christ. 
If you need help and guidance, I'm happy to offer some help. But really, your first step is to repent and come before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help you. The important thing is to become more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to listen to God. Now, to compound the troubles for the lost, for those whose life is in the midst of the chaos of the storm, they also share the same view of death that Solomon had. For many of those whom we share our lives with, they have a view similar to Sheol. They use different phrasing, of course. They don't have the exact knowledge of what Sheol was and what it represents, and they don't use the same language, but they share the same idea of their death, if they think about it at all. Others hold out the false hope of reincarnation. If this life isn't turning out how you like, don't worry, we get a, we get a mulligan, a giant do-over for this life in the next one. However, Hebrews 9.27 tells us, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is all there is. We don't get any do-overs. But back in Ecclesiastes, at the end of verse 10 in chapter 9, the teacher is telling us what each of us know in our hearts. Death awaits us all. One commentator wrote that the book of Ecclesiastes has the smell of the tomb about it. The truth of the matter is, while death is portrayed as the end in Ecclesiastes, later parts of the Bible portray the imagery that in the end, Yahweh will permanently swallow up death. Isaiah 25.8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And in 1 Corinthians 15.54, it reads, when the perishable put on, puts on the imperishable, meaning when we, per, we, the perishable, accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we put on his imperishability, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And Revelation 21.4 portrays to us believers the ultimate picture of what life with our Lord will look like. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the rest of the Bible is very clear on what happens after this life. But what does death mean for followers of Jesus? We see in Proverbs the firm conviction that righteousness certainly will be rewarded. Proverbs 28, 28 states, When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. And Proverbs 29, 16 teaches, When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. One important factor to keep in mind if we start to smugly look upon the wicked Remember what Paul warns in Romans 3, verse 10? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. So one does good. No, so no one does good, not even one. We will only see the joys in this next life if we shrug off the perishable and put on the imperishable. If we put aside our vain attempts at earned righteousness and put on the righteousness of Christ, then and only then will we be able to say along with Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
Death is a certainty for us all. However, for those who follow Christ in death, there is an uncertainty sandwiched between two certainties. Let me say that again. For those who follow Christ in death, there is an uncertainty sandwiched between two certainties. The first certainty is that we all will die, unless, of course, we are alive when the Lord returns. The uncertainty is that we do not know the time nor manner of our death. That is the uncertainty. The final certainty for those who put their trust and faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross is what we read earlier. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, we're going to transition to an ordinance that we, as a body of believers, do in remembrance of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And that is the faithful and proper administration of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. When we gather together like this and observe the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit shows up and administers what is known as an ordinary means of grace. What is that? These are ordinary things that we do that the Holy Spirit of God uses to accomplish extraordinary things like the imparting of faith and the sustaining, strengthening, and the confirmation of our faith. Because of this, participation in the Lord's Supper is reserved for believers only. If you have not yet accepted Jesus as Savior, we ask that you simply allow the elements to pass by you. There's one thing that's important to keep in mind when we observe the Lord's Supper. The third commandment states, you shall not take the, Lord, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is more than a warning against using the Lord's name as a cuss word. God himself, through Moses, warned us not to take the title Christian without careful self-examination, to not take his name in vain. It's no light matter to call yourself Christian and then to live like the pagans in the world. This is exactly what Paul warns us against doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29, when he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in a moment, I'll pray and help prepare us for the Lord's Supper. And while the trays are being passed around, I'll ask that you just take the cups and wait, and we will partake together as a body. So let me, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your completed work that you accomplished on the cross on our behalf. You bore our punishments. You became sin so that we could put on your righteousness and stand before the Father as blameless as you are. You came into the world and lived the only perfect and sinless life so that you would then become the, the suitable sacrifice, the spotless lamb that the Father required and that only you could fulfill. That is why at this time, we turn our hearts and eyes towards you. We can do nothing to earn your favor. We can do nothing to be worthy of this gift of forgiveness that you offer up freely to us. That is why we do these things in remembrance of you to take our eyes off ourselves and to put them firmly on you and only you and to put our trust in you. 
That is all that you require from us to deserve this gift we call grace in our lives. So we thank you for your love and your grace, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.